is such a strong sentence. You know, that last sentence in the chorus of the song we just sang. Um, Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. It comes from the Bible. Uh, Isaiah chapter 1, where God in the first person says, Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins were like scarlet, they shall be washed white as snow, or they should be white as snow because of what I can do for you. There was an early American poet. I think his name was Edward Taylor. I'm talking 1600s, not 1700s America. Um, And he wrote this. In reference to the atonement of Jesus Christ, he said, in this deep crystal crimson fountain flows what washeth whiter than the swan or rose. Like that is beautiful. I, you know, I wasn't looking to quite launch out this seriously, but cherish that, right? He's talking about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the man, God, our behalf. It's good. Um, we've been in this series, People of Faith, for the last several months. And this morning, we're going to look at the man, another man in Scripture. His name is Zacchaeus. Do you remember Zacchaeus? You can go ahead, if you got your Bible, turn to Luke 19. It's going to be verses 1 to 10, shorter text uh, today. Uh, last service, I'm just going to let you know they got out a little bit early, and uh, maybe we'll do the same here this time. Uh, we'll, we'll just see. But we're going to look at Zacchaeus today. Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree to see what he could see. The Lord he wanted. You all know it. How, how does the Lord he wanted to see and then, and then what? <laughs> so you're all mumbling. That I can't even understand. <laughs> Listen, this, this, is what it, this is what it boils down to. Um, there's a phrase that then comes into that next stanza, and it, it's, Zacchaeus, you come down. Right? Yeah. Okay, so I can remember as a little kid, when we would go to uh, church, and I'm, I'm, when I say little kid, I don't even know if my sister had been born yet. So I'm five or six years old, and we're at Riverdale Baptist Church in Lanham or near Lanham, Maryland, where we lived at that time. And on, on the last stanza of, of the verse, you know, when we come to right about this time, the worship leader standing behind that uh, polished wooden pulpit, um, now, now on the last stanza, let us gather together and let's have the children issue forth to children's church, you know? And so I'd trip over my dad and we would make our way to another building. And there were about a hundred kids in a room and we're all little kids, elementary school, kindergarten, first grade, that kind of thing. And uh, we're, we're sitting now and what I'm told is crisscross applesauce. You know what I'm talking about, right? And... The little girls out in front is how it usually went, the little boys in the back. And the Sunday school teachers are teaching us that song. 
and they got to the part in the song where it was, Zacchaeus, you come down. And this is how they would do it, kind of with a stern face. Zacchaeus, you come down. And I, and I don't want to be sexist here, but all the girls, the little girls were into it. <laughs> because they were the ones who were so obedient. You know, it was the little boys who were just, I, I, I never, never land or somewhere. I just remember looking around at this. But the little girls, Zacchaeus, you come down. <laughs> Can I tell you, the teachers got it wrong. The teachers got it wrong according to this text in Luke 19 because that's not the attitude that Jesus was bringing to Zacchaeus that day. It wasn't, you come down here because I'm gonna make my way through Jericho and I've got a long way to go. I gotta get up in the mountain, into the mountains to the city of Jerusalem and hurry up, come down. That was not the attitude. The attitude was, I, I feel like I must spend this day with you because there's no one else I'd rather spend it with. And I'm so pumped and looking forward to the afternoon or the morning, late morning and afternoon, whenever it was, the time we have today, Zacchaeus, I just wanna be with you. So hurry up because I'm all about that relationship with you as an individual and not just for today, but from today, forever. That's what he's wanting. So a little bit of thunder <laughs> too soon. We'll get back to that in a little while. But if you're in, if you're in uh, Luke 19, good. I'm turning there right now. And we're just going to read through and make some comments on this man of faith, Zacchaeus says in verse one, he entered Jericho and was passing through. Um, just a few things about Jericho, because I think it impact, or at least it can, and I think it should, even a little bit impact the rest of the story. Um, Jericho. So if you remember Jericho, that was the first city that the Israelites went to conquer and did conquer as they had crossed the river Jordan back in Joshua chapter six. Okay, and so they march around uh, the entire community. I mean, a massive throng, and they're marching around and they're playing their trumpets. And this is how God called them to uh, conquer the city, and they do. And then after they do, this is something that sometimes maybe we, as we're reading through the book of Joshua, we, we skip, oh, skim over this too quickly. Joshua, who's the good guy, actually lays a curse on the city of Jericho. Did you know that? He lays a curse and he says, may this be rebuilt. This city of Jericho be rebuilt. And whoever rebuilds it, may he do so at the cost of the life of his firstborn son. Now you talk about a curse. And when he goes to set the gates at the entryways, may he do that at the cost of his youngest son. So he lays a curse on the city of Jericho. This is the city that Jesus is walking through. Later on in 1 Kings 16, the very end, again, passage is easy to skip over this because it's talking about Ahab and how evil Ahab is. It's talking about Jezebel, his wife, how evil she was. And then it says this, that in those days, there was a man by the name of Hiel, H-I-E-L, and he chose to rebuild the city of Jericho. And the Bible goes ahead and it says, he rebuilt the city. 
at the cost of his firstborn son, and it names the son. And then he set the gates at the cost of his younger son, and it names that son, whose name I think was Segub or something like to that effect. This was a city, biblically speaking, that did not have a good reputation, that curses had been leveled against it, that a man had picked that up and decided to himself, I would rather be a big man and known as a land developer than love my own offspring, my own children. I'm all right if my son dies in this undertaking. Horrific. Here's the point. Jesus is undeterred. Jesus still goes to Jericho. There are people for Jesus to reach in Jericho. It does not matter what city you hail from. Jesus is undeterred. Anyway, just, just a, little bit about, a little bit about Jericho. Jer- Jericho is a city, by the way. It was not a village. It was a city. There were a lot of people there. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, which means that he was hated. You know this, right? We know this. Um, He's making his money, in a sense, off the backs of all those people around him. He had gone over to the enemy. He's collecting, whether it is for Rome or what have you. He's getting rich because of me, not because of him. And I hate him for that. He was a tax collector. Have you noticed, by the way, in Scripture that uh, tax collectors have their own category, that they were so deeply resented that you see this phrase multiple times, especially in the Gospels, sinners, all of those who counted as culturally, morally sinful, you dump all of them into that one category, and tax collectors, their own category. They were hated that much. So he's a tax collector. And he was rich. I want to say something else about that, about him being rich. Um, Have you noticed, perhaps, that to be rich is not just a matter of to possess much money. To be rich, many, many times, is to um, experience or to participate in a a kind of subculture or a kind of attitude. I haven't heard this in a long time, and I don't want to be judgmental uh, toward you, my brothers and sisters. Uh, But when I first came to the church, I can remember hearing this, uh, that there was something about New Jersey that we didn't like. (laughs) And we did. And and I'm thinking to myself, I'm from New Jersey. Like, I, you know, not most recently, but um, I grew up in New Jersey from fourth grade through high school, so formative years there. And I lived in a community outside of New York City. And, um, and, and, and it was only as, as I have, you know, over the course of my life reflected on that time, it, it, it's occurred to me how extraordinary the, the subculture was. My best friend in high school, his dad was simultaneously um, chief of neurology at Columbia Presbyterian Hospital in New York City and department chair 
of neurology at Columbia University, which is an Ivy League school. Simultaneously, those two things. And here's why I share it. The the prevailing attitude from my friend, very definitely, um, but from everyone, was whoop-de-doo. That's everyone. Everyone's parents are that. You know, I asked another guy, um, you know, I remember on the basketball team, um, you know, what does your dad do? Nothing. What what, what do you mean nothing? (laughs) Well, he owns land in Aspen. Oh, so, okay, so he just sells a piece or he develops a piece of that and makes millions whenever he's, you know, kind of in the mood. So, 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 so that, that's kind of the, remember in the wintertime, uh, you, you know, we would have to cut through the lobby at the high school there where we get ready to do layups, warm up for a basketball game, right? And the moms would come up uh, and stumble into um, the lobby and then into the gym in heels that were like, looked like six inch heels. And, 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 the re- and the winter, snow and ice outside. They're walking in heels. Like, reason being, um, they, they, needed to have, they needed to be as tall as they could be to accommodate a longer fur coat. Because the fur coat was a status symbol back then. And I'm going to make sure that I've got a ring on every finger. Seriously. I mean, on my team, it wasn't the guys who had the nicknames. It was the moms who had the nicknames. I still remember Mrs. I'm not going to share her name, but <laughs> her, her nickname was Cleopatra because of how she cut her hair. And she would walk past and the guys would be doing lay, layups. And, you know, some of the guys were bold enough to say to our buddy's mom, you know, hey, Cleopatra. Hey, Cleo. <laughs> <You know? laughs> when it came time for us to graduate and we're hoping to get into different schools, here's the mentality. Harvard schmarvard. Who cares about Harvard? Seriously. It wasn't all about, you know, can you possibly get into an Ivy League? We already know, and this was seriously the attitude, we already know that we're the smartest people in the world. Seriously. We already know that we're going to be the best doctors in the world. You know, whether it's broadcasting or publication, advertisement, whatever, we're all going to have jobs in Manhattan someday. We're all going to live either in Manhattan or L.A. And everything in between Manhattan and L.A., by the way, is, and I quote, the Midwest. (laughs) This was the world I grew up in. There is an attitude, a subculture. And I want to suggest that Zacchaeus would have hailed from his version of that as that kind of man because he would have taken his money from others. And they would have regarded him that way. I get it. In the world I came from as a kid, I get it why we can look over at New Jersey and say, huh, we're not sure what we think about that. I get that. But Jesus was not deterred to go after Zacchaeus. He wanted Zacchaeus and he was going to get him. Praise God. Our wealth or our poverty, relatively whatever, doesn't stand in the way of Jesus Christ. Back to the text. He was a chief tax collector and was rich, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was. So he's seeking Jesus. 
but only because Jesus was already seeking him. You know that, right? Like it's going to say in John 6, 44, Jesus says, no one can come to me except the Father draw him. So whatever it was that put, Jesus, or put Zacchaeus in that tree, it wasn't Zacchaeus. It was not initiated by Zacchaeus. Jesus said, I came. Not the people who, in a sense, don't need a doctor, but I came for those who are sick, morally speaking. I, I, I came for those who are sinners and tax collectors. You read about that in Mark 2 and other places. So it says, and he was, verse three, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. I, you know, I've, I've got that word small underlined. I, maybe you look, I used to be 6'5". I, I'm now 6'4". Um, I, I can tell you that my, to this day, my favorite benefit of my height is that when I am at the airport, I can look the length of the concourse. And I love that. I love to be able to do that. Uh, it helps to know how far you have to walk to your gate. Um, but I'll tell you the moment, one of the moments that I was just so humiliated because of my height. I was visiting a girl that I really wanted to become my girlfriend. <laughs> uh, and this was in college at some point, summertime. And I'd gone over to her home. Her mom opens the door and her mom is, is uh, there and she walks us down into the basement. And halfway down the basement steps, you know what I'm talking about. Barrett, I see you laughing. All right, and the, it caught me right there and about knocked me out to the point where her mom almost had to like lunge and say, just sit down. It, I hit that hard. Like when you're looking to, guys, when you're looking to make a good impression on her, yeah, that's what it was like for me. I've never forgotten. This guy was lucky. <laughs> He was small in stature, <laughs> but it meant he had to climb a tree. So in verse four, so he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree. He wanted to see Jesus. Now, how about you in your life right now, in your heart, do you want a better view of Jesus? Do you want a better view of Jesus why or why not? You're in the privacy of your own thoughts right now. Don't feel like you have to say to yourself, for my sake or anyone else around you, don't feel like you have to say to yourself right now, oh yes, I guess so, because I should. If you don't want a better view of Jesus, better to be honest. And I would just invite you to, you know, even quietly right now say to yourself, God, you know, if, if, if you do exist or I kind of felt like you used to in my life, I'm not sure where I'm at or what I think about you. I'm not sure how I feel about you these days. So if you're there, please love me in a way you know I need. That might be a good thing to say just in your head. Another th good thing that might be said, um, 
I've been so busy lately. Life has been so frantic. I feel like I'm getting hit by a million things and I don't know which direction they're coming from. Have mercy on me, Lord. Because I know that we have connected, but I know I also need to reconnect and I need you to take charge and I need stronger faith. Take me by the hand. Build me back up. Maybe that's where you're at right now. And it's better to be honest. You don't have to tell anyone. But he hears you. And that's what he wants from you. He loves you. So he ran on ahead and he climbed up because he wanted to see Jesus. He climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. Would have been a short tree. It's not like one of those huge trees uh, you see down along the yellow breaches with the flaking bark and the huge leaves on it. You know what I'm talking about? That, that, I, I think I'm told that that's a sycamore tree. Uh, that's not the kind of tree that Zacchaeus was climbing, but it was a Near Eastern virgin. Climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up. Jesus, listen, Jesus had known Zacchaeus from forever. Before I knit you in your mother's womb, I, I knew you. From, from forever, from, you know, I don't know theologically what to think about this phrase, before time. Okay, so in eternity past, the Trinity knew Zacchaeus. Jesus wasn't shocked when he stepped into that crowd and that crowd was moving along its way. And oh my word, there's a man in a tree. <laughs> he looks up and he speaks. I don't just love that about Jesus, I love Jesus. If you're tracking with me spiritually right now, you're gonna know what I just said. When Jesus came to that place, he looked up. He looked up. I remember a time we, we were up, I was serving, Kim and I were serving on staff at Camp of the Woods, um, and we had a special, special speaker that week, and it was Tony Evans. And if you know, have heard Tony Evans preach uh, on the radio for many years now, um, and he was preaching on a Wednesday night. There was a storm coming across Lake Pleasant, and Tony was, you know, going back and forth between a super high voice, huge guy, super high voice, and then boom, you know, he brings this bass to bear. And, and he's going, to, and he's talking about how, I think it was somewhere late in the book of Joshua, actually, at where God comes down, and he made this point, God must always come down down, because it is impossible for us to go up to him. And in a way that Tony does and did, he's, he must have repeated it three or four times. And on the fourth time, he said, God must always come. And he went down. There was the loudest crack of thunder I've ever heard at Camp of the Woods. Awesome. God is, he is Lord of the whirlwind and the storm and clouds are the dust of his feet. Nahum one. 
Yeah, that was God putting the exclamation point on Tony's sermon. Jesus looked up. You hear what I'm saying? Jesus, Zacchaeus needed, yeah, he's, okay, so he's pretty conspicuous there, but he needed Jesus to not just see him, but to speak, to, to stop the crowd and to look at him and to address him. And Jesus did. So revel in that kind of attention that Jesus gives an individual. And he said this, and this is where I'm just going to slow down and I'm just going to, well, maybe go pretty quick. Catch this in the red letters. This is what Jesus utters. Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Nine things. Real quick. One, our profession or occupation will not prevent Christ from reaching us. Which for some of us, it's like, okay, I'm thinking about what I do in life to kind of get by. And yeah, I don't think that Jesus would have a problem with that. But then others of us are going to think, well, what was I involved in before I became a believer? What was I raised in? Or and I remember Kim and I at our former church, I remember a woman, a dear, I mean, a soft, sweet soul of a woman. Her mom and dad, for their, they, they owned a porn shop. And she grew up in the porn shop. Remembers playing tag through the aisles of Rated X videos. And all of the men, in particular, who would come and visit the porn shop, loved Jesus Christ. Jesus wanted her, and Jesus went and got her. Our profession, our occupation, our own, or even those around us, Jesus is undeterred by any of that. He is undeterred by our wealth or the subculture that we hail from, our mentality. It's not going to be dissuaded, will not prevent him from reaching us if he wants us. We've already looked at that. Third thing, he knows when you are looking for him. Please, please don't offend yourself by regarding that idea as too simple. He, he knows when you are looking for him. And let, let me say this to you, that, you know, there are going to be plenty of folks in the room, I'm guessing, me sometimes among you, who, uh, some, some, because of everything that's happening in your life, and, and you feel like you cannot account, let alone manage, all the things that are going on, and you're crying out, and it feels like he's just not near. And you even begin to wonder if he's abandoned you because it looks like he loves the people around you, and you go on Facebook and you see how, but he, but he just doesn't love me that way. And it's not just that I'm miserable, it's that I feel like I'm at the end of my rope, I've let go, I'm in free fall, I don't know when I'm gonna land. He has not abandoned you. 
He hasn't. He knows who you are and he knows when you are looking for him. Zacchaeus just wanted a better view. Fourth thing, he calls you by name because he knows who you are. He's known you from forever. He calls you by name, individual. That's what I'm hoping, again, for everyone in the room, you know, that we can leave here with a little bit more gratitude and a little bit more interest in the days to come to walk with a man who wants us that much. I don't care where you're at in your salvation. I don't care for how long you've known him. I do care if you have yet to know him because I'm praying that today becomes the day. But I don't care, I don't care about the consistency of your relationship or for how long you've had it. When you leave here today, that you would want more of him. I want to connect and reconnect. I want to be closer. I want him to be closer to me. I want in my life what he wants for me. Those are the things. Every individual. He uses Zacchaeus here. I'm tempted to go through and start naming people and name some of my friends. But he wants, he wants, he wants you in the singular. As he wants us in the plural, he, you know, when the bride of Christ comes together to worship, amen. He wants you in the singular. Number five, he can pick you out of a sometimes hostile crowd. I'm about to read here, the people grumbled. So what? If he wants you, he's going to get you because he loves you. You thank him for that. You can say, God, please make that so. Come and get me. Good. Yeah, it's good. You know what scene comes to my mind? Um, I know it's, you can find it in Matthew chapter nine, and I think either Mark or Luke or both have a version. I know that they do. Um, of the diseased woman. Do you you remember this woman? Um, And behold, a woman which was diseased with an issue of blood 12 years came up behind him and touched the hem of his garment. For she said within herself, if I may but touch his garment, I shall be whole. But Jesus turned him about. And when he saw her, he said, daughter, be of good comfort. Thy faith hath made thee whole. So picture this, that, that, that story about that woman is happening because, and there's a crowd, Jesus has, has just come across the lake and there's a man named Jairus and Jairus goes and he finds Jesus and there's all kinds of people around and he says, hey, you got to come to my house because my little girl is sick, like she's deathly ill and he's about to find out that she's died. I need you to hurry to my home. And so they end up uh, making their way to the home of Jairus. And on their way uh, is when this woman touches the hem of his garment. And Jesus stops. And he says, you know, who touched me? And the disciples are like, what do you mean? There's like a million people here who touched you. Jesus stops. 
And he waited. I envisioned this woman. It would have taken a great deal of courage, I think. I envision her, you know, maybe trembling. She's had this disease for so long. She makes, you know, and here she is. And he heals her. She snuck up and touched the hem of his garment. That's when she was healed. Jesus stopped to turn to her and to bring it into the light for her sake and for everyone else's. He uses her in such a beautiful way, loves her so dearly, and shows everyone around her. He's undeterred by the crowd. It doesn't matter what the occasion is that's drawn the crowd together. It doesn't matter where the crowd is headed. It doesn't matter how hostile the crowd is. Jesus is undeterred by everyone around you right now. If they put up resistance. Number six, I think, he desires you hurry to meet with him. I just thank God that he is a friend and he calls me a friend. I thank God that he is a friend who says to me, and he says to you too, hurry. I'm tired of waiting for our fellowship. Number seven, he, quote, must have a relationship with you. He does not say, Zacchaeus, you come down. He says, I must, not you must. You must get your rear end home and get some wine and some dates and some bread and some whatever they ate then, some figs, because I'm going to be there shortly. He says, I must. And the idea there is that I want to. I can't not go to your home and spend time with you today. I'm going to be careful how I use my finger now. <laughs> Sermon. Eight. He wants to be in your home. You see that? Home is of the essence. What does the presence of Jesus look like in your home today? Something to think about. And he wants to reach you today. Time is of the essence. Back to verse six. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. It is such joy. How do you receive Jesus in your life these days? And when they saw it, they all grumbled. <laughs> he has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Let me say this. Jesus does not care what others think about you. So why do you care so much about what others think about you? He doesn't care. You know, 
Be kind to yourself. Realize the Savior that you walk with and unload that burden. He doesn't care. I wish for my brothers and sisters right now just to be able to unload. I wish for myself to be able to just unload. You know, living up to the expectations and approval of the people around me in ways that are just ungodly. Sometimes as a pastor, it can get confusing for me because I think that, well, as, as I'm trying to win your approval, it's because I'm trying to be more pastoral in your life. And that's something that I read pleases the Lord but then the Lord knows and will show me that no, that's still you wanting their approval um, of yourself, not their approval of me. They're getting caught by you on their way to me. And so I get convicted of that. Jesus doesn't care what others think about you you don't have to care what they think either. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, behold Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Like monumental proof as to conversion in his life. He'd had a lot of money, but when you start talking, hey, if I've defrauded someone, I'm gonna pay it back four times what I took. Like, that's an, awesome, that's, an, that, 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 that's an awesome dividend. <laughs> like, I hope that he had taken advantage of me <laughs> if I'm living back then. You know what I mean? You know, make back four times your investment. Awesome. That's where his heart was at. And that's what Jesus points at and says, yeah, there's the proof. He's going to say that then, end of verse 9 and into verse 10 but the half of my goods I give to the poor. You know who he was not like? He, he was not like uh, the rich fool in Luke 12. Uh, the guy who said, you know what? I am all about money because I am all about me. Just give me money. And so he goes forth and he gathers and makes himself rich and he puts it all into his barn and he goes to bed that night, and for maybe the first time ever in his life, he's like, I have arrived, and God takes him home. Probably not home to heaven, you know. Self-consumed. That was not Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was the reverse of that. Um, Zacchaeus was not um, the calloused, rich man of Luke 16. There's this story uh, of a rich man and another man named Lazarus. And the rich man was rich and Lazarus was, um, you know, like, like the kind of person that you would have to step over on a, on a city sidewalk. Um, you, you know, and it was revolting. It was revolting to the rich man. And the rich man had an opportunity to bless Lazarus somehow, but never took advantage of that opportunity. And so both of, men, both of the men die. And then what happens is that um, the rich man, while suffering in hell, 
just implores, please send Lazarus. Please send Lazarus. Just have Lazarus dip his finger into a body of water somewhere and come and wet my tongue just with a drop of water because I am in such agony. It's too late. And that's the point of the story. It's too late. The reversal, the massive reversal. But Zacchaeus was not like that rich man. Zacchaeus was not like the rich young ruler that Quay preached about uh, maybe a month ago. The rich young ruler who comes and he says, um, you, you know, what, what must I do to be saved? Or, you know, there, there's an interaction there. And Jesus tells him, go and sell everything you have to care for the poor. And then the man realizes, oh my word, I'm going to lose everything. I'm going to lose everything. And I don't want to do that. And so I pick my wealth and I do not pick, I reject Jesus. Now in that same text, it's going to go ahead and it's going to say, hey, that doesn't mean that it's impossible for rich people to be saved. But it does mean that it is as hard for a rich person to be saved as it is for the camel to go through the eye of a needle. Virtually impossible, but not impossible to God. Zacchaeus wasn't like the rich young ruler either. You know who he was like? He was like the tax collector in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector that's just one chapter in front of the one we're in right now, who beats his chest and says, God, have mercy on me. I am a sinner. I need you. That's who he's like, tax collector. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. The son of man came to seek and to save the lost. So it lets us know that Jesus confirms our salvation to us. That's a gift. The Holy Spirit of God continues to do that, by the way. I don't know if you took advantage of opportunity to memorize Romans 8. This is a number of years ago now, and Pastor Trent had invited us to do that. But part of Romans 8 is going to say to us that the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are sons and daughters of God. That's an ongoing thing. You don't have to have lived, you know, in the year 30 or whatever it was in Israel to have your salvation confirmed to you. The Holy Spirit does that for us. Last thing that I love about Jesus in this text, at least, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He didn't just come to save. And in particular, don't believe this lie that he only came to save and that once you are saved, you don't got to worry about it no more because you'll go to heaven someday. You got your union card in your back pocket. You're good to go. That's not what Jesus came to do. It says that he came to seek and save. That there are those of us, every tongue, tribe, nation, and he has identified 
for the sole reason that it is according to his pleasure and not for anything we have done. I want him and I want her and I want him and I want her into however many millions and billions of people over the course of history of civilization since Adam and Eve. I have identified that I want them and so I am going to go and get them. And whether it's Jesus Christ himself while he's still walking the Galilee through Jericho on his way to Jerusalem or it's the Holy Spirit and you cannot come to me unless my Father draw you and there's something working in your heart right now in the sanctuary at West Shore Free Church. If he wants you, he will get you, but he wants you, wants you because he loves you. Not because he wants to harm you. He came to seek and he continues to save. He continues to save and when you look at the tenses so often used when salvation is being addressed in the New Testament, you will see that it's not just that he has saved us, but that he is saving us. Virtually every book in the New Testament makes that point. He, he is continuing to save and to save. That means that he has a role still. It means that we walk with him. We are becoming more like him. It is so good and so proper that we gather every Sunday morning and we sing about what he has done. But we cannot, even for a moment, ever forget what he is still doing. Folks, Hebrews 7.25, it says that he always lives to make intercession for us. Right now, I don't know where you're at in your heart and in your mind right now. Right now, Jesus Christ does. He knows where you're at right now. The stuff that's swimming around, you know, or the, the, the stuff that's coming to a conclusion, you know, hopefully, and he's wanting to lead you as you think and to reassure you within the context of this relationship that he desires with you. He just wants that. He continues to make you more like him. Make me more like him. And then the question becomes, is that what you want? Let's pray on that note. Father, I just want to thank you for the story of Zacchaeus. Thank you for how Jesus Christ sought him. He says so. The son of man came to seek. And on this particular occasion, I'm seeking Zacchaeus. The father simultaneously and into the millions, you're just seeking however many people, whomever, draw souls to you. Make us more like you. Father, help us to welcome you joyfully. May us to walk with you. Just reminded of Enoch and how he walked with you. And there must have been such joy there in Genesis chapter 6. Wonder if he even noticed the transition from earth to heaven when you just took him. And by his faith, you took him. And 
Perhaps he didn't even stop to rejoice that he was in heaven because he didn't notice, because he didn't care that he was in heaven. All he wanted to do is just keep talking with you. You were what mattered in heaven, not heaven. Father, create in us that kind of heart. Build our faith. Make us like Zacchaeus. Help us to know that you call us by name because you know us. Each one of us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.